200 accredited courses and more than 1,000 videos, the Police One Academy is a powerful online solution that provides department training programs with features that reduce time spent on records and policy management, credential tracking, and more. It is law enforcement training made simple and effective. For more information and to get a 30-day trial, visit www.policeoneacademy.com forward slash policing matters. Hello, and thank you for clicking and thank you for listening to Policing Matters, the Police One podcast. I'm Doug Wiley. Hey, this is Jim Dudley. Hey, Jim. It's the end of the year, and uh, I just want to note that it, it eluded my attention uh, when we last met that we had a four-year anniversary a couple of weeks ago. So we've been doing this now. We're in our fifth year nice. of, um, of, of, of talking about Policing Matters uh, and you know the double entendre of our title of our podcast whoever is, thought of our title was a genius thought of that is a genius that was you of course um so it's the end of the year uh we're looking forward to 2020 uh i i want to wish you a merry christmas you know we just had christmas a couple of days ago i i want to ask you a quick question do you agree or not agree die hard is a christmas movie agree totally okay, there you go totally i just wanted agree. to get that out of the way um with what is sure to be a tumultuous 2020 about to commence, um, let's kind of reflect back on what the last 12 months uh, have been. Um, we had a number of different podcasts over the course of the last year that got a lot of attention, got a lot of clicks, got a lot of comments. Um, and some of the topics that we've talked about in the past, I think, require our attention again. Uh, I'll run through them real quick. Officer suicide, uh, use of force in California after the passage of AB 392, um, active shooters, uh, prevention and response. Um, we talked about facial recognition, uh, artificial intelligence, um, something that San Francisco now departed George Gascon, the DA, uh, put into place with regard to using facial recognition software uh, in the process of prosecutions. The persistent anti-police sentiment uh, we've been seeing. Um, staffing across the country has been a problem for so many agencies and how we can rectify that matter. And of course, my favorite and yours, uh, the one that got the most comments and the most emails, the use of CBD oils for pain relief uh, among police officers. Um, let's kick it off. Officer suicide in this year, uh, as of 12-12, we're recording this on the 12th of December, uh, there have been 212 reported suicides, according to Blue Help. Of course, you know that I'm a board of, board of directors member there. Um, I'm going to kick it over to you. What are your thoughts, before I get into some of the things that I want to talk about, um, on what we saw this year in law enforcement officer suicide? Well, unfortunately, we've seen the trend continue to spiral up from the last three years. Um, according to the Blue Help uh, website, uh, at least 159 officers took their own lives in 2018. So it's really discouraging to hear the numbers that we have so far. And, um, you know, if I had an answer, I'd put it out there and put it on and all, but uh, I don't. And all I can say is that we are in fact, our brothers and sisters keepers, and we do need to keep an eye out for each other. Uh, we need to 
um, make the right notifications. Uh, I think we need to do more outreach. Um, I just know from from fact, from our own behavioral health science uh, unit, that one of the policies I always had a problem with was that we couldn't do any direct outreach to individuals who were struggling, that they had to seek help. And I don't know that that's always the answer. And especially in our line of work, we are a proud um, uh, career. Um, we, we feel like uh, we can control almost any situation. Um, it's very rare that we ask for help. And when we do, we usually ask uh, in consideration of others and maybe not so much ourselves. And I think we really need to um, identify people that are struggling. Uh, maybe it's a, a quick fix. Maybe it's a, a financial issue or a substance abuse or um, uh, internal family uh, member that needs help. But if we can resolve it at an earlier stage rather than waiting for a, a critical point where people take uh, long-term solutions for short-term problems, I think... Um, we need to do whatever we can. These numbers are, they're out of control. I agree. And I think that, um, you know, I have done a considerable amount of work in this particular area with Blue Help. Um, and actually prior to becoming a board member of Blue Help uh, for several years, been really interested in trying to resolve this issue. Um, there, as you'd mentioned, um, there, there is a stigma sometimes attached to seeking help. And, and many agencies won't be proactive about saying, hey, your behavior is looking a little hanky here. We need to talk about how you're doing. But, you know, as you mentioned, you, you are your brother's and your sister's keeper. And it's sometimes as simple as saying, I'm here for you. I want to listen to what you have to say. Or let's go out and just do something. Let's go fishing. Let's go hiking. Let's go for a run. Because... Oftentimes, and I've spoken with many, many widows uh, and widowers, a couple of them, of law enforcement officer suicide. Interestingly, very, very few by comparison to men, women. Very, very few women commit yeah. uh, suicide. Um, but oftentimes there are signs, warning signs, visible that in retrospect, after the fact, you go, oh my goodness, I, sh I should have seen that. And here are some of them. Displaying feelings of hopelessness, right? Right. Um, withdrawing from friends and family, like just being not present anymore. Mm -hmm. Increase in alcohol or some other smoking or that other kind of thing. Um, noticeable change in weight, uh, which is one that I never really thought of, but I do know a person, a woman who saw her husband mushroom in weight and then he, 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 he died by suicide. Um, Ending typically beloved like hobbies or recreational activities, just mm -hmm. kind of pulling away from sudden unexpected outbursts of anger. These are kind of the things that you'd be looking for. And interestingly, and now we that's kind of the stuff that the family would see. Partner officers or you know coworkers might see something like uh, a statement like, "You'll take care of my family when I'm gone," right? Mm -hmm. Dude, that's a that's what we call a clue. Right. Um, Threatening suicide. Oftentimes people will foreshadow their own deaths by saying, I'm going to kill myself. You should probably intervene then. Sure. So I think that there needs to be and there is beginning to be a cultural shift in law enforcement where people are more aware of these things. People are more aware of the need for mental health intervention and, you know, and are, are more willing to say, hey, I need help. 
Because cops are generally the helpers, right? Right. And I've seen uh, other indicators uh, giving away property or giving away belongings mm. as, as a, a precursor or indicator. And I, and I want to stress that any one of these things standing alone does not indicate that people are thinking about doing the worst. But together or um, multiples uh, may be indicators that somebody's looking for a little attention or help um, that we can easily, like you said, just take them aside. Hey, what are you doing next Wednesday night? What are you doing Saturday night? Let's go grab uh, a sandwich. Uh, pizza and a beer, uh, spend some time together, and uh, hopefully you can get the other person to open up and, and talk about what's what's really bothering them, and uh, you nip it in the bud before it gets to a critical stage. Right, right. One last one last note on this topic is that um, we don't know for sure that the actual numbers of deaths by suicide in law enforcement are increasing. What we do know for sure is that we have more reporting of it. Mm. And there is the possibility that um, because th people are having more conversations openly about the topic of death by suicide in law enforcement, yep. that there is more reporting, that people are coming more f coming forward more frequently, reporting to places like Blue Help. Um, we can't say for certain that the numbers are up. We just know that the numbers that have been reported are up. But that having been said, let's hope that in 2020, we actually see a decrease in the reported numbers of suicides. At 212 on 1212 uh, in 2019, that's way, 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 way too many. One is too many. Let's see if we can get somewhere below that uh, here, next here. year. All right. There's no easy way to transition out of that topic, so I'm just going to abruptly pump the brakes here and talk about the police use of force in California under the newly enacted law AB. 392, also known as the California Save Lives Act, a.k.a. the Stephen Clark Law. Jim, um, you, I'll tee it up just real quick. You know, the circumstance in the Stephen Clark thing was uh, that there was uh, a call of break at car burgles uh, in Sacramento. I believe it was Sacramento. Um, police arrived. They found someone that uh, fit the description of the person who was suspected of burgling the cars. Uh, that person ran, fled to the backyard of uh, a, a family member's home, um, appeared to be from helicopter surveillance, uh, the FLIR uh, video, appeared to be making some gesture that uh, looked a little bit like maybe it was presentation of a gun. Uh, officers opened fire, Stephen Clark died. Um, this law was written probably pretty much in direct response to that incident. What are your thoughts on the the law itself and how it affects law enforcement officers um willingness to use force and deadly force more specifically uh in the event that they are presented with a problem that appears to be someone who might be posing a deadly threat well i think the situation you described in sacramento i think uh, it caused a moral panic i think uh, uh People saw it as being uh, aligned with other uh, police shootings. And I think the bottom line is that people don't understand uh, police use of force. And they don't understand the objective reasonableness standard. They don't understand that the officer's perspective at the time of the incident is what the courts should go by. 
And I think for the legislators who wanted to really overhaul the system that would put California in a totally different category from the rest of the country that would hold them to a higher standard uh, beyond the objective reasonableness established by the Supreme Court of the United States. Pardon my interruption, but I I want to correct one word there. I wouldn't say higher standard. I would say different standard. Different standard. It's a standard that's... In my in my way of looking at the world and probably yours, it's a lower standard. It's 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 un, it's an unfair standard. Yeah, I just mean that it's a higher standard in that the you know I would call it this this shoot second law right. that it would require officers to determine that any object pointed at them was an actual gun, almost to the point where that gun had to be fired right. first, which is absolutely ludicrous. ludicrous. And so when I say a higher standard, I mean that it's a standard that goes over and beyond what the Supreme Court's already ruled is admissible, that that the officer on scene, not somebody sitting in the comfort of a desk or a juror's panel. 48 hours later. Behind the desk of a prosecutor's office, uh, in the calm of their office on a nice cushy chair, we're outside. It's dark. We're responding. We have a right to be there. We have a right to investigate. There's an individual in the backyard. He's not complying with verbal commands to raise his hands, show mm-hmm. his hands. Instead, he comes forward with an object in his hand that's dark. He points it, and you respond in kind. There, there are other incidents that are really similar to this. There was one in San Francisco where the individual pointed what turned out to be a taser-like weapon uh, with a laser-like sight in uh, early dusk, pointed it at the officers from uh, 30 feet away, I would um, estimate. And all the officers see is this laser light coming at them from this dark object in the guy's hand. They shoot. And and I believe that they shot appropriately in self-defense. it's it California is not the first. There have been other cities that have changed similarly. They don't get to the threshold that they want, and that is necessary force. And that is to go back in time or to go forward and say it was a squirt gun, it was a BB gun, it was a pellet gun, it was a replica gun, it was a wallet, it was a cell phone. Thus, it was not necessary to shoot, and that's wrong. Yeah, and that, that's been determined in... Graham v. Connor, Tennessee v. Garner, uh, you know, this is this is case law that has stood for decades that the objectively reasonable officer, what that objectively reasonable officer would do under the totality of the circumstances at the time, right, not exactly. in retrospect, not in hindsight, and not again, as you put it, from the comfort of a desk. Uh, so this this new law, but the the, the question still remains. What does this, how does this impact law enforcement officers in California? Well, assume, I mean, we, we've talked many times in the past about deadly hesitation, and you talk about the shoot second rule. Right. You know, and so for me, the, the danger here is that you're going to find some case sometime down the line. I think this actually, this law actually takes place in only a few days. It, it takes hold in, in, in January 2020. January 2020. So... My my fear is that 
we're going to have a case sometime down the road here in California where an officer who otherwise would have been justified in shooting chose to not and engaged in that quote finger quotes deadly hesitation mm-hmm. and either is injured or killed as a consequence and that's i think that the that's the impact for me of this this law yeah and i think the original version uh was much more stringent in uh, the scrutiny imposed on the officer after the fact. Yeah. Instead, though, the, I don't even want to say a watered-down version, but the different version that uh, came about after near mutiny by law enforcement agencies across the state, mm-hmm. um, that legislators were brought up to date on the real issues that the new version has, like other agencies and cities before California that they looked at uh, ways to deal with those with possible mental illness, uh, training options, force options. And they they went with a more training and uh, philosophy rather than changes proposed earlier um, that leave use of force decisions back in the hands of the law enforcement officers on scene actually dealing with the event. More changes will be proposed, and the best weapon in the fight against these proposals is education. Education, And that's education aimed at legislators, the media, and the general public. That said, we talked a little bit about it on a previous show about the, the value of community policing mm-hmm. and community uh, academies, citizens academies, and the like. And I think those are excellent vehicles to educate the public. But it's got to be done carefully and it's got to be done incrementally. If you were to take a legislator and throw them in a video of a shoot, don't shoot scenario, it doesn't really do much except uh, get their heart pumping, their adrenaline pumping. They're in a situation where they shoot or don't shoot. There's really no consequence. They know they're not going to die. They know it's a simulation and they really didn't learn much. I think. Before you get into that simulator, you've got to bring people into almost a a training room, classroom setting and lay down use of force options and what the thresholds are. And also, when we talk about de-escalation, to talk about the fact that the best case scenario that scholars and academics and legislators love to talk about include dealing with a offender or a suspect who is somewhat rational and compliant. And I know officers that are listening, uh, sworn law enforcement people that listen to the podcast know that in those situations, that's least likely. Yeah. The, the idea that's, that... That's the outlier. Yeah. I mean, why would Rational, be, reasonable people wouldn't be doing engaging in something that attracts the attention of law enforcement. Exactly. Why would you be considering force options if someone was compliant? Right. And and the idea of de-escalation and running behind a phone booth or a, a phone... Uh, What's a phone booth? You know, it's not what I meant. A mailbox, a car, um, whatever, that uh, the individual that's armed... Uh, or even unarmed, but that's approaching, uh, they're moving the bubble. And 835A of the California Penal Code says that police officers, once engaged, have no obligation to retreat. 
And I would imagine that across the country, there are similar codes that say the same thing, that you can use force to effect an arrest, to overcome resistance, and you need not retreat, and you will not be deemed the aggressor. Well, politics have changed that. Now they're saying cops should run away. Cops shouldn't handle it. They should let evaders go. I, I disagree. I, I think we need to educate the people, the critics, and, and put the onus on them. What, what's our alternative? Running away is not the alternative, and prosecuting cops for acting uh, in good faith when they're confronted in these situations, that's not a good answer either. My only um, final thought on this is that these things do run in cycles. They, 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 the pendulum swings back and forth. We are obviously in a pendulum swing that is pretty anti-police and pretty... I mean, there's so many things that have been passed that are pro-criminal. There's decriminalization of things. There's all of these things that are... Um, yeah, the, the, the so-called prison reform, the, you know, all of these legislative acts, um, political acts, social justice acts that have transpired over the last little while. My hope in 2020 is that the pendulum begins to swing back in favor of law enforcement and in favor of um, enforcing the law, making sure that criminals are held to account, that that criminals are actually prosecuted for the crimes that they commit. Um, and that citizens are protected because I think that, you know, you'd mentioned in an earlier podcast that in some places, in many places, in fact, citizens are beginning to push back and say, hey, look, you know, we're suffering from this. We have people pooping on our streets. We have people breaking into our cars. We have people, you know, all of these crimes that are transpiring, drugs being dealt in our neighborhoods. And hopefully the groundswell will begin to go back in favor of law enforcement next year. Uh, again, no easy transitions here. We're going to jump from one thing to the next. And the next thing is active shooters, active shooter response, and active shooter prevention. Um, I was really fortunate that I'm a graduate of the FBI Citizens Academy. And uh, as such, I get invited to these different events. And I went to a debrief on the Gilroy active shooter uh, incident that took place this summer. Um, fascinating debrief, two hours of information about not just the incident itself, but the, what happened afterwards, uh, the investigation and the, the crime scene. Actually, it's, it's the largest crime scene uh, that the FBI has ever uh, covered for an active shooter incident. It was 57 acres. Wow. Yeah, no, right? Um, we've had Gilroy. We've had so many others over the course of the last 12 months. Uh, I don't want to begin to list them because if I try, I'm going to forget one. Um, I mentioned Gilroy only because I did have a, a deeper dive into that particular incident than I typically do. I got direct debrief from the FBI. Um, what are your thoughts, Jim, on, you know, I, I, people will argue that there are, there are more of them now. I think if you really look at history, there's probably not. You know, if you go back to the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, there have been incidents of active shooters um, in in which there were multiple fatalities that are not family members, you know, that kind of thing where you, you have to kind of separate out what sure. active shooter is versus, sure. you know. Disgruntled employee. Dis exactly. Domestic violence situation. Right, exactly. Um, whether, putting aside whether or not there's more. Uh, what are some of the things that can be done to to mitigate the active shooter? We just had one 
last week, I think, or whatever, in, in New Jersey. Yeah. Um, and that was a barricaded subject, you know, in, in my way of looking at it. Two, yeah. So it was two, yeah. But it was a barricade situation. And it began as an active shooter. It began as a, uh, a uh, ambush, became a barricade. So it, 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 it migrated all the way down a couple of different situations or ways in which you describe it. Yeah. Um, the active shooter that you know you typically think of is going to be Columbine. Is going to be um, Las Vegas. Is going to Parker. be yeah, exactly. So, what are your thoughts on where we're at with active shooters and the response? Well, I hope we can change the title to active shooter prevention. I think we need help in identifying those with the potential to be active shooters before they act. Uh, earlier this year, I wrote about red flag laws and highlighted activity and steps taken by someone who idealized uh, the anniversary of the Columbine murders. The individual went on with blogs about her intent, about this uh, fascination with the shooters, uh, traveled across states, purchased a gun legally, and then finally uh, killed herself uh, in the vicinity of school just days before the anniversary. And that was as the net was about to close in on her. But by then, it was really close to 420. Uh, school officials had already shut down the school and uh, evacuated kids. So there was some real concern. So I profiled the actions and called this suspect the poster child of red flag laws that allow law enforcement to petition a judge based on facts to remove firearms and investigate further, satisfying both the Fourth and Fourteenth Amendment protections. But I received a ton of hate mail. I'm saying, actually not surprised at all about saying that. that it was blasphemy to suggest such a thing and that um, several cited their Second Amendment uh, rights uh, and protections and said, uh, now I'm uh, proposing that we send cops in harm's way, that we're going to houses of armed individuals uh, looking to do harm, and now uh, the cops are going to deal with these uh individuals well aren't those the ones we want to disarm so number one the process the process calls for a petition brought before a judge to articulate why we want to take the guns blogs threats that don't meet the threshold of a, a felony threat um, all these things that otherwise stumped us in the past and and we sometimes we felt so frustrated that we couldn't go out and grab these people mm -hmm. or the guns. But now uh, we have these abilities and I'm hearing the pushback from law enforcement saying, hey, you're out of your mind. You're just another liberal gun grabbing guy now. And that's the I know furthest. that that's, I know that's not the case. That's not the case. <laughs> so otherwise, we go back to telling civilians to run, fight and height. And we respond to the mayhem. People have already been shot. People are bleeding out. People are dying. Maybe they're kids. Um, it, it's, it's a situation where if we don't start looking into prevention, then we're always responding to an act that's already occurred. And I believe, and I, and I know you know, that if we were to break each, each individual mass shooting down, take out some of these outlier things like um, guy who goes back to work and shoots his boss or a lover's triangle. Somebody shoots the 
Right, uh, like at the hair salon or what have you that was down in, in the south someplace. Right, then I think then we look and see that for unstable individuals or individuals with a grudge or individuals uh, who have a statement to make, whether it's domestic terrorism or just inside their own head, mm-hmm. there are precursors. There are, there are always precursors, it seems. And, it, you know, we have federal authorities that look into these things and they're often criticized. But in the Parkland shooting, uh, I understand that there were several uh, tips that this well, individual... They, they intervened with that individual multiple times. Law enforcement had contact with that individual right. on multiple occasions. Yeah. So at what time do they take him off the rack and, right. uh, and take away his ability to access firearms? I took my SEPTED, my Crime Prevention Through Environmental Design, professional designation course this year, and I saw a lot of expensive and innovative uh, gadgets and technology um, designed to halt, disorient, distract, and help capture shooters before they do too much damage. But still, the shooting had already begun. People may have already been shot. And um, I don't know. What, what do you think? Well, I, to your point about um, indicators, uh, Dan Mark, who, who is a very dear friend and a person who I've learned a lot from and has uh, written numerous excellent books that I, I recommend everyone listening to the podcast look up, uh, beginning with Law Dogs. Start with Law Dogs and, and go from there. Um, he came up with and taught me the five phases of the active shooter. And it's, you know, it's ideation and, you know, the, the and then there's the kind of planning and then there's the, 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 the preparation that would be the, the you know, obtaining a weapon of choice or weapons of choice. Then there's the approach phase. This is the most visible phase. Uh, and then, of course, there's the actual act itself of attack. And, you know, in every case, you know, you look back and when an active shooter has been prevented, it's been prevented because some person who knew the person, knew the, the offender said, or the, the potential offender, the, the person who didn't actually commit the attack, intervened and said, because there was that one where uh, it was, a, I think, a mother or a family member who said, you know, my, my, my family member is acting weird. And they went to the storage facility of that family member. They found a cache of weapons. They made the arrest. They said, you know, or, or, uh, they, um, they made contact. They developed an, uh, an investigation and they found that this person had, a, you know, a log of, of, of what they were going to do. Right. You look at... Um, at uh, 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 the, the, the high school shooting in Colorado, these kids, these two kids, and I won't name them, I'll never name them again, um, they had carefully mapped out plans. Yeah, um, they kept, often, they kept uh, journals. Um, I won't name the person who t- uh, attacked uh, Virginia Tech. I'll never name him again. But in his preparation phase, um, his preparation phase involved going to a gun range in Virginia. And during the course of the time that he was training at that gun range, he would put targets on the ground and shoot the ground targets. This is what we call a clue. Yeah. This is what we call an indicator. So there's always an indicator. The thing of it is, is that, and, I, and I'm, I'm not quite there with you on the red flag loss thing. I'm going to yeah. be right up front with you on that. But there are ways in which if we enable family members, friends, coworkers, what have you, to have the education about what these indicators sometimes look like right uh and say hey look we're 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 looking out for the 
the best interests of your family member, your friend, or your coworker. We don't want them to kill other people or be killed by us when we right, arrive. Right, right. So, the, it, it, again, in, for so many years leading up to this year, people have been, like you put it, I think very succinctly and correctly, have been ignoring these, these warning signs. And hopefully in the year 2020, we can get to a place where, if, again, if you see something, say something. But then what do we do with them? Well, I mean, what one thing you can do with them is have them evaluated. You know, it, ensure that they have no ideation. And that's, that requires a psychologist. I'm, I'm no psychologist, but I have been around people. <laughs> I have been around people who I'm like, that guy could, that guy could go off. <laughs> yeah, you know? no, if you look at the FBI shooter reports, though, uh, they don't mention the mental status of these individuals. Right. And yeah. we've talked about it before that if you do these heinous acts, there's something wrong with you. If you know that a buddy, a fishing buddy of yours who lives in northern Nevada decides to take 20 of his best rifles and, and firearms in duffel bags with thousands of rounds of ammo, scouts out different casinos that overlook venues, settles in on twin suites on the corner of a high-rise hotel overlooking a venue having that knowledge what do you do with it yeah it's that's a that's the 60,000 60 million 600 billion dollar question you know and I can't answer it other than to say call somebody up and say there might be a problem here yeah and then in the event that the law enforcement is able to make contact prior to an event you know ask the questions what are you what why are you in this hotel suite with all of these guns when there's going to be a country music festival here in a couple of minutes so like you you have to figure it out like any any kind of questioning that you do at a traffic stop or you do at a a, a, you know a a street contact a terry stop yeah you you have to just sort of absorb the information and figure it out right right no and and i hope people listening are taking this in and trying to figure out what their local mechanisms are what do they do what are the next steps do you do you get together with your investigations group your SWAT group do you start a matrix do you try to figure out what your next steps are do you start putting the paperwork together do you contact a judge and take that step towards disarming this person at least till you you find out their motivations and their next steps yeah maybe there's a gun show coming to town that we don't know about Maybe there's a legitimate reason for their actions, but let's slow things down, check them out, and not wait till something bad happens. Yeah. Um, again, there are no easy transitions today. We're doing a bunch of different stuff. So we're going to go right to facial recognition software. It's use, and frankly, it's lack of use. Um, there has been a very shrill response among some rights organizations uh, about the use of facial recognition software and criticism about the fact that it it is less effective and I'm putting my finger quotes in the air again uh, because I don't know I'm no scientist I, I, I don't know any of the ins and outs of this sort of stuff but it's less effective in recognizing uh, accurately people of color um, that's one of the criticisms. There's been a lot of criticism of facial recognition software and its potential use. Um, I, I recall only 
a couple of years ago, I believe, Amazon's recognition, uh, with spelled with a K, recognition, um, the, 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 it was touted as uh, it could detect, analyze, compare faces for a wide variety of user verification, you know, people counting, public safety cases. You know, it was it was kind of the hot new thing, and law enforcement began to really experiment with it. I believe uh, on a like a beta <clears throat> test right. uh, kind of thing. I believe it began to be used uh, by an agency officially in Oregon. I, I looked and looked and looked and looked. I can't find uh, precisely where that agency is. And then so long ago that I wrote about it that, uh, well, I, uh, that, that information has been long overwritten in my skull. Um, but you and I talked about this technology uh, this year uh, because former district attorney George Gascon uh, here in San Francisco is now, I think, running for DA in Los Angeles. Um, he introduced a new artificial intelligence technology that will redact from police reports any information that would indicate the race of an individual accused of a crime. So I'm, I'm kind of conflating two things that are related uh, because they, because without artificial intelligence, there would not be facial re- recognition technology. Simply wouldn't ha- right. wouldn't occur. Um, but you and I talked about this a couple of months ago, and I think we agreed that you know the, the cake is not yet baked. That this technology isn't finished yet, right? Right. But I think you know when we first started talking, we we started bouncing the topic around a little bit. We talked also about artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. And facial recognition only being one aspect of right. that. So I get the criticisms. I know in California, <laughs> there was a study done uh, or a test, and they found out that 47 of um, the, the California, I think, Senate or Assembly was um, identified as being uh, a criminal. No and, kidding. I yeah, didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I don't know if it was ever debunked, but uh, I think they were saying that that wasn't true. Well, they might be criminals anyway. <laughs> so uh, I didn't say that was Doug <laughs> who said that. So, you know, predictive policing is something that I hope with all, you know, here we are in Silicon Valley. I hope we can come up with some really good predictive, predictive policing technologies. Um, you know, people scoffed, you know, at the turn of the century when fingerprints were found to be useful in identifying mm-hmm. individuals. Remember DNA's introduction? DNA, blood yeah. typing. Um, yeah, Gigo, garbage in, garbage out. So whatever kind of predictive uh, method we're using, if we don't get the accurate data in, we're going to get inaccurate data out. So I think that's part of the problem with the artificial intelligence programs. I think it's part of the problem with the facial recognition. Um, but I, I did read an article, and it was a year-old article, and it talked about um, doing a, these assessments of um, databases. And one of the articles I read uh, talked about in a NIST, uh, National Institute of Standards and Technology database of 12 million mugshots, the top performing recognition algorithm failed to correctly match a face in just 0.45% of searches. Wow. That is pretty doggone good. Falsely identified a face even less often. The difference in accuracy between the top performers and the next 50 or more algorithms is typically 
tenths or even hundredths of a percent. Wow. So I remember when we talked about it, I don't know, six or nine months ago, yeah, like we talked about a 30 plus percent fail rate or inaccurate identification rate. Seems now that some systems are pretty doggone close. Um, when we certify them, when we use them, I don't know, in, in California, in Portland, I think it was St. Paul, Minnesota, I'm, I'm pretty sure. Um, ha, and, and now nationally, there's talk about banning the use of facial recognition for a couple of years until we get it right. And in San Francisco, they've actually written legislation to say we cannot use it until 2023 three plus years from now. And, you know, to be totally frank, I agree with that. I'm okay with delaying something until we know for sure that it has the, the I, did, I was not familiar with the NIST uh, stats that you just mentioned. Those are very impressive. And if, and if all of these systems, because there's many competing systems, there's recognition, there's sense time, there's DID, there's Cognetic, I can't remember. Right. There's so many. I don't know which ones are going to be really good, and I don't know if you're going to get one that's really, really bad. Right, right, right. So, I mean, the market's going to shake that out, and I'm a big free market person. Let the market decide which of these technology companies or these technology solutions actually rises to that fantastic NIST level. Yeah, that is as close to being perfect as you can get, and then. Yeah, go for it. All in. Right. It, 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 identifying suspects in large crowds, pre people who have pose a threat. We just talked about active shooters. We've no talked fly about list. Exactly. All of these things. I think that there's a great amount of upside and potential for this. Yeah. I just think that we're not yet there. Right. And it's possible that within the year 2020, 2021, that we get there because Moore's Law indicates to us that the technology is multiplying over time and uh you know and there are a lot of really bright people working on this problem or let's let's not call it a problem it's working on this concept that you know we we're going to have self-driving cars eventually and you're going to probably see uh long-haul truckers looking for other sure. work you're going to see um we have already the robots delivering stuff, and drones are probably going to be coming from Amazon sometime darn soon. Right, or so, order and pick up at your locker. Exactly. All these things are coming. I just want to make sure that, particularly with regard to people's rights and law enforcement's ability to conduct activities effectively, yeah. I want to make sure we get it right for No, first. totally. And they are, the facial recognition is in use in other countries. Uh, private industry uses yep. facial recognition. Uh, but you have, you know, to, to borrow the term from uh, President Ronald Reagan, trust. But verify. But verify. Yep. So make it a two-point authentication uh, system, right? Don't rely on uh, facial recognition as being the one-doll, end-all, and don't use it uh, to convict. Um, I think it's a, it's a starter, um, in a situation where you have situational awareness of threats at a large public event, uh, at an airport, at a ball game, mm -hmm. you know uh, there are threats, you know there are individuals associated with those threats. Let's turn on the facial recognition. Uh, there's no harm in 
using it to identify people to maybe stop, detain, and investigate. Yeah, and and to your point from an earlier podcast on this topic, um, if if I'm going to paraphrase you because it was some six or nine months ago, you need to have, as you point it, put it, two pieces of evidence. You can't just rely on this one thing right. as as your evidence that you have something to go on. Right. Yeah. Just as. DNA shouldn't be allowed to be the sole piece of evidence right. to convict. It should not be the sole piece of evidence to uh, acquit. Right. Uh, let's jump. I'm going to reverse uh, my order here. Let's do, because it's your favorite thing. Yes. The use of CBD oils. No. Uh, let's not get back into the same discussion because it was really hilarious and we got so many great emails and thank you for all of the emails. Email us at policingmatters at police1.com anytime you want. Um, it was it was a great discussion, but the fact remains that there are now more states with laws on the books entering 2020 and more states with laws that are potentially going to be passed in 2020 sure. that will allow for the legal use of various types of marijuana and hemp products. Mm. And the, the, the angle I kind of want to use here, because CBD oils as pain relief for cops, there's really, we, it's, such a, it's such an undefined thing. It's so, there's no way to fix <laughs> that yet. Minute. Wait a minute, back it's, the truck up. CBD oils as pain relief for cops? Yeah, well, I mean, that's that was the topic we talked about last time, right? Well, I believe we, we talked about CBD oil and and the possible hazards. Yeah, well, okay. We, we're remembering a different conversation. <laughs> okay. um, but let's... There are, there are implications of the increasing legalization of these products, yes. whether that's CBD-oiled... Legal Mar- weed. Legal weed, all of that. And, and it has implications on recruiting. And the, you know, the next topic is going to be recruiting. But let's kind of tie this together with that. What are the implications, do you think, of trying to become a law enforcement officer in Colorado when you're an 18-year-old, 22-year-old who's smoked legal weed in the past? Yeah. Well, I, I, I just cited uh, President Ronald Reagan. I want to cite another Reagan uh, Nancy, who said, just say no. Just say no, Doug. Just say no. <laughs> Too often we allow ourselves to be part of a social experiment. Take, for example, the vaping wave. Oh, yeah. And now we have, what, 36 deaths so far related to vaping, whether it be through some sort of oil or uh, related to marijuana or THC. And there's, I think it also mentioned something about uh, uh, vitamin E. Yeah, also um, an oil. Yeah, but, yeah. but so we, it's claimed the lives of um, these 36 and hospitalized numerous others. September 2019, uh, 2019 CDC Centers for Disease Control report indicated 36 deaths. And as of September 11, 2019, 380 confirmed and probable cases of lung disease associated with e-product use or vaping. So sometimes, I talk about this in class, sometimes we technology gets ahead of legislation. So technology gets to a point where it's out there. We saw it a little bit early with drones, mm-hmm. and now we're seeing it with uh, vapes. And we're seeing some municipalities 
outlawing vapes in public, restricting sales to uh, over 18 years old, um, some cities banning sales altogether. Um, in the case of legal weed, still not taken off the Schedule One designation. That's true. Still, still illegal in the eyes of the federal government. Yep. THC is the main culprit with exact levels not always known in the case of marijuana and CBD. Even if you get CBD oil or a supplement or a capsule that claims to be THC free, um, better make sure. And my suggestion in our last podcast on the issue was get it from a doctor. Don't buy it yourself. Uh, do some research. We saw one um, study that showed that even uh, claims of an organic uh, CBD oil had um, some traces of synthetic. Yeah, it was boosted. THC. Yeah, it was yeah. boosted. So um, and 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 that's the that's the buyer beware. And and to your point, it, you have to get the best quality thing that you can get. Um, but again, you know, there, there, it's still just like we were talking about with facial recognition. We were talking about with so many. Uh, we, we don't know where we're at yet. Right. Right. I mean, we right. just, it, it's no. So why why be an experiment? Why be a guinea pig? Right. Why right. Be a white rat. THC is the main culprit with exact levels not always known and the effects of lingering presence days or weeks after chronic use. Don't smoke weed and carry a firearm. Don't drive any mode of transportation. Don't take care of my kids. Don't fly my plane. Don't operate on my brain. Yeah. Well, I definitely, th- I, I agree with you. You don't want to be under the influence of a THC while you're actually performing your duties. Right. But my question actually goes back to, you know, I haven't, I'm figure quotes here in the air. <laughs> this is, I'm, I'm role playing here. Uh, <laughs> I, I haven't smoked dope in Four years of college, uh, I was there. I did in high school. Now I'm going to apply to the academy. I'm being upfront with you. I have definitely done it. I'm not going to do it again. But I grew up in a town where that's what the kids did at 16 and 17 years old. But I now want to be a police officer. And, you know, how do, because we're the next topic we're going to cover is going to be recruiting. Yeah. How do you resolve the you can't have done drugs before thing? As a, as a requirement. Well, legal or not, you shouldn't be smoking marijuana under 18. Yeah. The, the law says that. Right. But also, hopefully, agencies are getting out in front. And if, you're, if you've got a cadet program or an explorer program or you're recruiting. You're getting out in front of that. Hold on. <laughs> Hold your fire. That's the next topic. <laughs> or, or if you're recruiting, that you better make sure the candidates know that that's not the way to go. Yeah. And... Um, I mean, it's like alcohol use if you're 18 years old and it's illegal. And um, I think agency by agency, they have different standards for um, marijuana permissibility. Mm -hmm. Um, Sometimes they want some time, distance and shielding, whether it's um, last joint you smoked was five years ago or or more that you smoked a quantity under X amount that each agency goes by their own standards. Oftentimes, they won't tell you what that standard is so that you don't tailor uh, your background to meet uh, their standard. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's hop. This is actually the first smooth transition we've had today. Um, hop directly smooth. 
uh, hop directly to the, the, the recruiting crisis and staffing crisis. We've had um, numbers of agencies, many agencies that I've heard and read about over the course of the last year, 2019, that have had, I, I heard just the other day about a 46-person agency that's now down to 25. Wow. 25. And the overtime hours, one there, there was one person who had worked, um, I believe it was 70 hours in one week, had two days off, and worked 80 hours in the following week. Um, it's it, it just awful. Like, just ridiculously no bad. Good. No good. Um, without getting into the fatigue issue of that particular individual who obviously collected, like, literally thousands of dollars of overtime, um, the agencies that are troubled, the agencies that have maybe um, a less than stellar reputation for supporting law, law enforcement officers, the agencies that have um, a history of law enforcement officers looking for another job in another agency because they've been mistreated, um, lack of leadership, uh, low pay. I think actually low pay is probably the last on the list of the reasons why officers leave. Yeah. Um, but you know, looking for a different opportunity or looking for a promotion in a different or lateraling out to get to sergeant in another agency or what have you. Right. Um, having just talked about trying to recruit kids who potentially might have had some experience with marijuana in a legal marijuana state, setting that aside for a minute, how do we, and we've talked about this before in this podcast in this year, how do we get to the kids with PAL, you know, P Police Athletic League, Explorer programs, cadet programs, um, because I think the really that the solution to this this recruiting crisis begins with high schoolers. What do you think? Oh, well, I think it begins maybe even earlier than that. Um, I'll get to that in a second, but I wanted to point out that I think there there are several influences that affect the low numbers of police recruits. Mm -hmm. And we talked about it before that they, the, we have the best employment rate in decades um, across the nation, yep. lowest unemployment rates, a negative attitude towards law enforcement. Politicians love it to get elected. Uh, news media loves it. Uh, if it leads, it bleeds. Uh, we've talked about that before. Stringent hiring practices uh, going back decades. We, we still have the same standards. And, and I, I want to throw in an asterisk there because I don't believe we should lower them. Um, the cost of living in urban areas is certainly a factor. Mm -hmm. You talk about finances as not being a key factor, but if you're making a living wage compared to the area you live, that's awesome. But you could be making $100,000 here in San Francisco where the median cost of a house is a million. And that might not do it. That's not going to no, do it Definitely not going to do it. So, so you're going to be living in Stockton. Right. So, I, you know, I'm no economist, but I think that we're going to see a we're going to see a change in the economy. We're going to see the, the gig economy um, take a big dump. I think people are going to realize that we are as humans, we're living longer uh, if you're driving uh, a, uh, I don't want to use the brand names, but if you're driving a car for hire and you don't have a 401k and you don't have a health plan and you don't have a pension, do you plan to drive when you're 75 or 80 years old? Mm -hmm. That's not a good plan. 
Um, I think, yeah, I, I love I love my career in law enforcement and I love the ability to use my own discretion, to use the tools that I were, were given to me and to be a problem solver. And I think those things need to be sold again back where you're talking about, mm -hmm. in high school, uh, mm -hmm. in middle school. I think we need to keep uh, school resource officers. They need to be our best ambassadors at the middle school level, if not before. I think uh, we need to demystify the law enforcement profession and sometimes refute the things that we see on TV. And I think, I know that active cops are in a tough position. I know chiefs are more politicians than they are cops. Mm -hmm. And if they want to keep their jobs, they're probably not going to criticize uh, people in local government that criticize what they or their officers do. But someone's got to be an advocate and, and give the other side of the story when there's some heinous police action described, when we all know, those of us in the business know that there's a reasonable explanation for a use of force or um, for driving the way that that we that law enforcement drives in order to pull someone over and protect pedestrians or whatever the issue is that we need someone to step up. I don't think it's always the union. I believe it. it maybe it's friends of police. Maybe it's um, activists on the other side of the the aisle to to explain police actions. I feel like I can do it. I feel like I'm an ambassador. I'm retired. I teach at my institution. If they want to fire me for something, I say, I've got a good pension because I did 32 years in a police agency mm -hmm. and I'll never stop. And I, and I took an oath a year ago um, to say I wouldn't let these, um, you know, this gaslighting to go on. That people who wanted to uh, vilify cops or vilify the profession for whatever reason, that if it was an untruth, that I was going to speak out against it. Yeah. I think that to, just to get back to a couple of the things that you said regarding school resource officers, um, it's unfortunate that in many agencies that's considered to be um, being put out to pasture or being not well-respected position. Okay. It, unfortunate. It, because it's an incredible opportunity to engage with people uh, who are, um, A, potentially vulnerable to being victim of crime. Sure. B, potentially vulnerable to being someone who might future in the future commit a crime. And C, most importantly, potentially a possible employee of the agency. You know, you can advocate. And I love the Police Athletic League. I love um, Cadet Academies. I love Explorer Academies because, you, especially in those last two, you get actual access to actual police activity, to training in something that is vaguely police-like and you have a sense of responsibility and belonging. I think that what's overlooked, especially among gray hairs like me, uh, often too often, uh, and I admit to being at fault here at times, is that uh, we look at the millennial and the younger generation as not being interested in service, when in fact, they are very service-driven individuals. And so what we should be doing is not selling policing on you know, you're going to get that great pension because there's no guarantee of that anymore. Mm. But you're going to be able to serve the community in a way that nobody else is going to get to do. 
you're going to have a position in which you're going to affect positively the lives of millions of people over the course of your career. Agreed. And if you start selling the culture of service to to these young people, they're going cuz they're already doing volunteer work. They're already, you know, helping with habitat at, for humanity at the age of 16 years old. So they're already doing stuff and if you can kind of tap into that and say you can do this and you can do it professionally and you get to wear a badge and a gun, then we might be going someplace because the, the the hiring crisis that has transpired over the last couple of years, yeah, it has to be reversed. It because ha- there's so ma- too many agencies that are so understaffed, and other than um, retiring military uh, in, uh, people who are perfect for law enforcement in so many ways, really the kids are the answer, right? Yeah, I think so. But I mean, the people that you describe, I don't know it, it, that it's going to be as simple as that. I think it's. I think we're going to be turning the the tanker or the, the the cargo ship in the middle of the ocean, and it's going to take a while before we make that 180. So we talk to young people. We put positive spins on stories. We explain why cops do what they do. Mm-hmm. But I think we need to get into universities and colleges and no. institutions, learn, higher learning institutions. There's... There's a sense of social justice out there that has, along with it, uh, an anti-police sentiment. So uh, I would challenge IACP, PERF, and other organizations. FOP, maybe? FOP to sponsor trainings, sponsor um, master's programs, PhD programs to get retired cops in the last or, or cops in the last years of their uh, career to look at service yeah to go and teach at an institution and uh, then and only then do we get people talking about what it's really like in the radio car hopping out uh, quelling a fight breaking up a domestic violence I mean some of my colleagues talk about um, police use of force and de-escalation tactics and all these other things without really being there. And I don't need to know how to take apart an engine to drive a car. I get that. But still, uh, if I'm out in the desert and my car clunks down, I want to take a look under the hood and see what's going on. It's, it's useful information. It's useful information. Yeah. And so uh, I, I see that, that sort of negative um, perspective on law enforcement and I think we need to balance um, what's being taught out there today. I think we need to have cops. At the end of every year, I get these evaluations and I hear it from students constantly, overwhelmingly. I love hearing from a cop who was a cop, who did these things, who can apply the written Supreme Court ruling to the field, the penal code to an arrest. Uh, they love hearing the stories. You um, put the ball on a tee for me, so I'm going to actually take a swing at it Um, because we've had only a couple of easy transitions, and this is an easy one now. You mentioned anti-police sentiment. We're going to close the the podcast with this. Um, And I have two takes on this. Uh, The the anti-police sentiment that we have been seeing in the last five years, I think it's Ferguson was 2014, I believe. The just the 
overwhelming, I mean, with, not just among organized groups, um, but, you know, like Antifa and uh, Black Lives Matter and, uh, you know, uh, Anonymous and uh, all of the organized or semi-organized, I guess, groups, but just individuals um, tainting food or, you know, writing bad names on coffee cups or, you know, refusing service at a restaurant or all these these things. Um, this anti-cop sentiment that's kind of taken root in the press, the public, and among certain politicians who are elected sometimes on platforms of anti-police policies. You know, we mentioned, you know, the depolicing of various crimes and making various felonies, misdemeanors, and everything else, pandering to various groups that would be potentially positively affected by those types of outcomes. Um, the anti-police sentiment has been semi-coordinated. It's been persistent in the media. You know, if like you'd said earlier, just just a few minutes ago, if it bleeds, it leads, and it's sensationalized. And it's the next. It's the the it's the story of the day, and it's the story tomorrow, and it's the story next week. And then the trial happens, and the cops are always the bad guys, and the bad guys are always the quote victims. The counterpoint to that the other side of that is is i want to talk about the anti-police stuff but i also want to bring up this fact the overwhelming majority of american citizens support and respect their police it's the 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 fact of the matter is is that they're silent they're and they have been silenced they have been out shouted by the people who are anti-police and I want to. I want law enforcement officers listening to this podcast at the end of 2019 to understand that there are people out there who absolutely adore you and love you and want to support you. Um, let's recognize first, Jim, the, the 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 reality of the existence of this anti-police garbage that I know that you have experienced on the campus of your university. Right. Um, that I have seen in my neighborhood. Um, that it it it. it, it no question about it. Undoubtedly, it exists, and it can be violent and dangerous. It can be vitriolic. It, there's the water buckets being tossed on cops in New York City. There's all of these violent attacks, um, uh, uh, ambush attacks. They exist. We have to recognize that. But I also want to finish this podcast on the positive side with some of the things that we've seen over the course of the last year that involve support for law enforcement. What are your thoughts? Yeah, totally. And I think if you're going to be a cop today, just as in the last several decades, better have pretty thick skin. And if you don't, then expect to be on the news or on somebody's video. <laughs> and um, been to several demonstrations where police were not the topic du jour, but sometimes turned out to be just for being the mitigating uh, buffer between two opposing sides. Uh, We've seen it before. Um, We've been baited at some of these things to get a rise out of police, to get a response so that the demonstration or protest would get on the news because otherwise who cares? But I, I totally endorse what you say. I believe that there is a silent majority out there of people who appreciate the work police do Uh, I believe that you have filled classrooms, you have filled citizens' academies, 
You have people joining neighborhood watch groups. They care about their communities. They see the police as their allies, their protectors. And frankly, it's time for them to step up because otherwise uh, it's one hand clapping out there. It's, <laughs> it's, the, it's the other side um, standing on their soapbox, deriding the police with their negative messages. And at some point, um, both sides need to be heard. Um, again, I, you know, I use the, the phrase that we should demystify, but we really should. Um, the only way to, to, to make clear the side of the police is to talk to people and the media and to go on social media and that every cop working for every agency is an ambassador. And we are the most visible form of government in any city, in any town, in any county. The mayor of your city could walk by you and you, you'd you never know it. Right. The head brain surgeon at your trauma hospital, the your garbage man, your mailman, if they're in their own clothes, you don't know who they are. Police, working cops, in uniform, or in plain clothes, even they're obvious. Well, uh, you got the haircut. Most of the time, right? <laughs> but the most visible form of government. And so you're constantly under scrutiny. Anything you do or say, anywhere you park, uh, if you're talking on your cell phone in your radio car, uh, people will object to it. Uh, the, the, the naysayers will. So... Maybe you, uh, you know, when confronted by, hey, I pay your salary, you know, why, why can you talk on your cell phone, ma'am? I was getting more information from a dispatcher. No, you don't own, you don't owe individuals those explanations. But sometimes a, a minute to explain something to uh, someone who would otherwise walk away with a negative interaction with you, I think might go a long way. Um, I think I pointed out on a, a previous podcast about a an incident where um, an individual had his bicycle stolen out from front of his house. Yeah, I remember that. And he called 911, and a cop was nearby, pulled up within minutes. He goes to, like, you know, sad sack, walks over to the car to make the report or to argue with the officer to take a report. And the officer says, jump in. And he says, what? And he says, jump in. And he drives around the block, and he's, what's your bike look like? Did you see the guy? And the individual in the front seat is like loving it. And they're driving around the neighborhood. They see a guy on a bicycle. They drive up to him. It's not the bike. It's not the guy. And they're driving around the neighborhood. And at the end of it all, they didn't get the bike back. The police officer takes a report, gives a case number to the individual. But the interaction goes from a negative cop showing up for something bad that happened. Didn't really want to take the report, but... I sort of had to browbeat him into taking a report. Instead, it's a positive interaction. It's exciting for the individual. If the officer's got the time, hey, if you could find the guy on this guy's bike a couple blocks away, gosh, what a story that would make. But if you go the extra mile, you can really uh, turn a negative uh, incident into a positive one. And and hopefully um, we don't succumb to the, the negative uh, naysayers and we remember uh, who we signed up to do the job for. And we still protect people and we still help people. Yeah, I love that story about the uh, 
it always brings to mind the bicycle thieves the movie the bicycle thieves i don't know why but it's a great story uh and it's indicative of something that one of your old colleagues had told me a long time ago i won't name names uh on the on the podcast here but i think you're gonna know who i'm talking about spend the extra minute yeah and um that that goes in that all you there's so many things that can be put into that little capsule of spend the extra minute you're at a domestic violence call and there's a child you got to take dad but you got to talk to the child for one minute yeah um you're at whatever incident that you're at take another minute and look around and make sure that you see and saw everything like just take an extra minute and that bicycle thief story is is very indicative of that mentality and philosophy. Um, I want to I want to kind of come back a little bit to um, the 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 anti police thing, and then I, I really want to end this podcast on a positive note uh, about some of the things we saw in twenty nineteen uh, about times in which uh, people have just done beautiful, wonderful things in support of law enforcement. Um, the water bucket incidents in New York City were absolutely outrageous to me. Um, they were indicative of a lawlessness in that particular city and other cities. Baltimore had similar incidents. There were all kinds of different um, assaults on police officers that weren't technically speaking I guess assaults because they, they, they should have, in my opinion, they should have been prosecuted for the water bucket stuff. Mm-hmm. It just, I'm no lawyer, but that's me. Uh, um, there, there have been undeniably all of these different incidents, the different things on food contamination and uh, protests. My hope is that, and my feeling is that, and this is where I'm going to pivot is that we're beginning to see a transition to when that silent majority is being more and better heard. It, it, that, the, that the people who really support law enforcement are becoming more visible. To back up again, law enforcement has the opportunity and has had now for a little while, but now is really beginning to figure it out, to own their own narrative with social media posts of the things that they do. Yeah. And you see a cop rescuing a kitten from the median of a freeway. And you see just the other day, law enforcement officer with a suicidal subject who was literally saying, just shoot me, just shoot me, just shoot me, figure out a way to talk that guy down and get him into cuffs. Yeah. And there's body cam video. And they're, so they're, they're being more effective at, at leveraging all of the really good things that happen every day. All the, that bicycle thief story is indicative. There's so many times oh. every single day. The kid who called 911 because he wanted a Happy Meal. Yes, right, exactly. And the officer actually delivered a Happy Meal. Like, these are things that they're not... This is not part of the job necessarily, but it's so good to do these things. And they happen all the time. The guy who... Uh, the officer who helped the person learn how to tie a necktie for a job, job interview. Get a shave for a job interview. Different incident. All of these things that happen, and law enforcement is doing a much better job of making these things known. Because it was law enforcement was so secretive about this stuff. Like, no, I'm just doing my job, man. Right. But no, just doing your job actually involves many, many acts of kindness every day. Right? Agreed. I want to talk about a couple of acts of kindness from citizens in uh, response to 
you know, the, how they recognize law enforcement as being the wonderful servants that they are. There's Donut Boy, who has delivered, I believe, 70,000 donuts across 40 states. I think he's 12. He's 12. Um, there's the kid who's the running for heroes kid. He runs a mile every time there's a law enforcement officer killed in the line of duty, and he carries a blue line flag every mile. Um, I'm going to tear up a little bit here because this one I witnessed. Uh, in 2019, early 2019, I believe it was in January. I don't. I apologize for not knowing the exact date. Um, Officer Natalie Corona was killed in the line of duty. She's a friend of a friend of mine. I attended her funeral. There were thousands of people there. There were thousands of people who couldn't get in to the arena. Um, when the when the hearse the was when she, when she was brought out from the arena and was run um, in the gauntlet, thousands thousands of citizens lined the streets. I hate the fact that it takes the death of a young woman to show that citizens actually care. But it was a indelible, memorable event for me in 2019 to see that as we drove up I-90, I-5, I right, from Davis to Arbuckle, Every overpass except one, which was a interstate freeway, the 505, every single overpass had citizens on the overpass with blue line flags and signs handwritten on cardboard. Nice. So, Jim, I want to thank you for another great year of this wonderful podcast. Um, I want to end this podcast on the note that there are people out there who love you, who care about you, who really understand that you're doing God's work and that all of those negative things that are happening sometimes in the press are overwhelmed by the feelings of the silent majority. Here, here. Stay safe over the holidays. Happy New Year, and uh, here's to 2020. Here comes 2020. Thank you again for listening. <laughs>